Welcome friends, my name is Jonathan Reeder and I am the Community Life Pastor here at Friends Church in Orange. And we are so glad that you are checking out this message today. We hope that you find inspiration for your spiritual journey wherever you're at on that journey. We're just glad that you're here today. If you wanna find out ways to get connected here at Friends and be a part of our community, you can just check all that out on the website that you're on right now. Find out how you can be a part of what is happening here at Friends. We hope you enjoy this message and we hope that God blesses you through what you hear. You guys enjoying summer? Yeah? Yeah? Okay. It's, it's nice and hot and sweaty outside. It's wonderful and amazing. You know, we always say like the unofficial start of summer is Memorial Day, but I don't know about you, like, I never really felt that as a kid because I didn't feel like as a kid summer started until school ended, right? So like the moment school ends, whether you're a teacher or someone who works in school or you're a kid in the room or a student here, you're like, man, that is when, right, like summer begins. But then you get past school and you're like, okay, I don't have like a start date except for like the date that summer actually starts. But I'm like, I don't really feel like that's it. But I do feel like, at least for me, 4th of July is like, this is the time where it's like, okay, it's summer. It's summer, right? We got everything red, white, and blue. We're enjoying everything. It's wonderful. I saw a meme two days ago where it said, someone waking up today doesn't know they're gonna lose their fingers in three days from now. And I was like, that is celebrating freedom. So all that together, man, summer is here, right? It's wonderful and amazing. But here's something else I know, is that we are all collectively, man, we're enjoying summer. If you look um, just kind of through your Instagram feed right now, you are probably getting jealous and envious because everyone you know either went on a trip, is currently on a trip, or is packing their bags to go on a trip, right? Lindines, you guys are going to Puerto Vallarta tomorrow, like there you go, okay, okay, I like it. That's good, that's good. My bags are actually packed, they're in the car because I'm leaving in an hour to go to Milan. So in that too, it's like this, I, I know, I know. My wife has a cool job, we'll put it that way. Um, she's there right now, I get to go catch up. But I'm excited, right? And there's something just about like the anticipation of like a trip, right? Like the trip itself is always wonderful, but there's something about like the anticipation of a trip, of like where are we gonna go and what are we gonna do and how is all this gonna work, right? And then I don't know about you, but for me, Man, I love just the process of once we've picked the place, then we're picking out what we're going to do and how we're going to get there, and we're building itineraries, and I'm getting super nerdy with it, and it's awesome. But then we get about a week or two or, you know, three weeks out, and we start thinking about, okay, now we know what we're going to do. What are we going to pack in our suitcase? And I start thinking through, well, I'm going to Milan. That's the fashion capital of the world. (laughs) I need a full new wardrobe, right? So you start thinking through like, what am I gonna wear and what am I gonna take with me and all the things I don't need, but I need them for this trip, right? Oh, I'm the only one? No, you guys don't? Okay, okay, we all do this, right? There's like, oh, I gotta have this. And then, and then one of my favorite things, like two, three days before the trip, is going to Target and going to the mini toiletry section. Oh, oh my God, there's nothing quite like, like being there, right, and just like paying double for something a third of the size, and you're like, this is amazing, and it's wonderful, and somehow like my airplane's not going to explode because I have a smaller thing of toothpaste. That's, okay, that's serious, but still, like, that's what's cool about that thing, right? And I think there's just something fun, honestly. I just, I love the anticipation of a trip. I love packing for a trip. It's like, it's just so fun. And then I love the trip. And I love the journey, and I love being there. But what I don't love, and you probably don't love it either, is when you get home from the trip. (laughs) And if you've been good, and you haven't looked at your email over the course of your vacation, it might be in the thousands. 
and you realize, I've got to respond to 500 of these. And you just begin to, to think about everything that you have going for you. And I don't know about you, but sometimes when I get home, you know, as much as I was so excited to pack my bags and get ready, it's almost like I'm not as equally excited to unpack my bags and fully be home. And so sometimes I'll come home from a trip, and my bag will just be sort of lived out of for the next, like, you know, I'll do like a little bit of laundry and a little bit of this, and I'll be like, where is that? Oh, yeah, it's in my bag. And instead of taking the time to actually unpack and actually be back home, I just live out of it for a couple days. Natasha does it too, I'm hearing from her, from, from her chuckles. But here's the thing, right? I, I think that all of us do that in some way or shape or form physically, but I think also it serves as a great metaphor. I think a lot of times, wherever we are or wherever we're living, we live our lives still in our suitcase, and we don't actually take the time to unpack our bags and be fully present wherever we are. And so today, as we continue on in our Ignite series, Ignite series, basically, we're taking a few passages of the Bible that are maybe a little more obscure, ones we don't normally look at, but they're pivotal for us understanding a well-rounded and vibrant faith. And we're going to look at them over the course of the summer to ignite our faith so it can be just on fire. And so today, as we talk about this idea of unpacking your bags, we're going to be in the book of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is one of those books that if I asked you to name your favorite book of the Bible, I doubt it would be Jeremiah. You can counteract me later, right? If I asked you to name your, your, your top 10 books of the Bible, my guess is Jeremiah is not on the list. If I asked you what books are you skipping in your Bible in one year, Jeremiah might be on that list because it's, it's, a, it's a funky book in some ways. It's a book that's, that's wonderful and beautiful when you understand the nuance and the context, and it's a book that is just full of unique imagery and interesting things that maybe sometimes we feel like doesn't necessarily apply to me today. But as you'll see as we go on this journey, it absolutely does. And so if you guys would turn with me, we're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 29. And here's something I do know, is that one of the verses we're not really going to talk about, but it's in this passage, is a verse that although you might not know much of Jeremiah, we do often have this like knitted somewhere in our house, and that's Jeremiah 29, 11. And my hope today is that as we even glance at this, you'll see the context for which that verse was actually written. And maybe it'll give a little more understanding to what God's actually saying when you sip your coffee each and every morning. Okay? Here we go. Jeremiah 29, starting in verse 4, it says, This, this is what the Lord Almighty, this is what the God of Israel says to those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses, settle down, plant gardens, and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets or the diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you are encouraging them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I haven't sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you, and I will fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me, and you will come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. 
You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place where I have carried you, from which I have carried you into exile. I love, in fact, I love this passage and I love this chapter. In fact, for me, this, this passage has been one of the most pivotal passages in my life the last probably four or five years as I have sought to understand and seek, God, how do we honor you? How do we follow you in a world that maybe increasingly looks less and less like what I'd imagine you would want the world to be? And this passage, though, before we jump to what it means and the implications for us as people who are seeking to follow Jesus, we have to do some gymnastics. Because so often what happens, friends, is right, we'll, we'll open up the Bible and we just like read it and we look at it and we think every time it says the word you, God's talking about me. Because we live in an individualistic culture in 2022, we think everything God's saying is directly about me and we forget the Bible is a collection of books. It's a biography, or it's a library, if you will, filled with a number of different books written a number of different ways to a number of different people over a number of different times and places and years. And so there's a context in which Jeremiah is written. And we have to do a little bit of work to understand the context so we can then understand how God might want us to live and learn from it. So here's the context that wouldn't have been foreign for Jeremiah's listeners, but it is for you and for me. If you were to tell the story... If you were to tell the story of the nation of Israel, you can tell it in two ways, but the story is not complete unless you tell it both ways. On one side of the story of Israel, the side of that coin is the side of the story of God. Ultimately, all the Bible is about God. All of our lives should ultimately be about God. But if you look at the story of the history of the people of Israel, it is a story of a God who loved them so, 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 so well. It's a story of a God who time after time after time after time showed them his love gave them what they needed, provided for them, carried them out of captivity, all these different things, that he was with them even when they didn't feel like he was with them. And then on the other side of that coin, the other side of that story that we must tell is the people of Israel, the object of God's affection, who at times were on fire for God, who at times were loving God and caring for him well, and then other times. In fact, most often, they would forget their love for God, and instead, they would go the opposite way. Instead, they would choose whatever seemed appropriate to them. They would choose whatever was easier. They would, they would choose to listen to people. We even read it here. False prophets and false teachers who told them what they wanted to hear, but things that weren't actually from God. And time and time again, they would choose to go away from God, and then time and time again, they would repent, and they would be a back and forth do si do and all throughout the Old Testament, there is an illustration, a metaphor that's given for the people of Israel and for their lackluster relationship, their fickle relationship with God. And it's the same illustration that you see over and over and over again in Jeremiah 1 through 24, and it is that of an adulterous spouse. It's that of a spouse who's faithful, God, and a spouse who is unfaithful, Israel. And time and time again, God loves, and time and time again, Israel cheats. And after years and years and years, God sends people, prophets, 
who are just called to be mouthpieces for him. And he sends them into places to care for people, to show people, to remind people of his love. But remember, they didn't share things that people wanted to hear. No, no, no. They often were called to share things people didn't want to hear. Because you can surround yourself. You can surround yourself with people. You can surround yourself with people who do what I do, who just tell you you're awesome. And don't tell you maybe the hard truths of what God might want to call you from. So he can affirm to you that he loves you and cares for you. Love doesn't say you're great. Love calls out your faults. I was doing a premarital counseling session with a couple just this last week. And in it, we talked about the beauty of the covenant of marriage. That marriage in a Christian context is not a commitment that we can break whenever we feel like it. Marriage within a Christian context is a covenant And the difference there is that means we're leaning in and we're together through all times. And what we talked about is not just that we commit, but that the beauty of what covenant does, the beauty of what that level of commitment does, is it allows us to be vulnerable with one another. If you're not all in, if you think at any moment the person in the the relationship can leave, you're never going to be your fullest, truest, even darkest self. But if you know that because of God's grace, you're able to love one another so well and so deeply, guess what? You can be vulnerable and show the places in your life that are difficult and are painful. And in that way, right, you're able to continue to grow with one another, to lean in and to love God well. So in the midst of that kind of picture, right, of Israel who was uh, unfaithful to God, but God who was faithful to Israel, God says at a certain point, he says, okay, you guys aren't fully listening. You're not fully turning back. So well, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to put you in a timeout. And he comes to the southern kingdom of Judah, and he says to them, he says, I'm going to put you in a 70-year timeout where you're going to go to Babylon. You're going to go to Babylon. Now, Babylon, that word for them would have instantly been remind, reminiscent of, uh, of, of a lot of things, but really Babylon, along with Egypt and, and a few other places in the Bible, are the examples we see over and over and over again of the worst possible, most wicked, most earthly places to possibly be. So imagine this. Not only does God like, let Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, to come and take over and, 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 and overtake the people of, of God, But God actually wills that it would happen, which is mind-boggling and crazy, but it's because God says, no, no, no. Like, this is part of my plan and part of my purposes. And so what Babylon would do is they would would take a a community, but if it was an especially unruly community, which Israel was, God literally told Israel, allow yourselves to be conquered, and Israel said, no, we're not doing that. So they put up a fight, they quickly lost, and because they had been unruly, Babylon did what they did to the worst you know, pe- people they would try to, try to conquer and conquest. Instead of just allowing them to live their life and then pay taxes back to Babylon, they would take the cultural elites from that community to Babylon itself so they could do what? So they could indoctrinate and enculturate the highest levels of society for that community and then ultimately send them back. They could help them forget and lose what they thought and what they believed and the things that they thought mattered most and then send them back so they would be changed and different. That was their sinister plan. And that is the context for our passage today. Remember, verse four says this. It says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. You see, these people are in exile. 
And that word exile is always for a moment, but it's, it's rarely for the length of time that they or we would wish. And if you read the Bible, you might notice that this word isn't just used in the Old Testament, but in fact, it's one of the primary descriptors the New Testament uses to describe Christians. That both Peter and James begin their letters by calling people exiles. And in their actual language, right, the word that we translate as exiles is perfectly translated as resident aliens. So Peter and James both talk to Christians and they say, you as resident aliens, you as exiles, what does that mean? You're a resident wherever you are. You live there, but you are not from there. You are a resident alien. That is what I am. That is what you are. That is what we are called in the scriptures. And so when we look at Jeremiah, yes, we can look at it in the context of understanding what he's talking to them in a place and all these other things. And the lessons that God has for the people of Israel are also the lessons God has for you and for me. So the question that we're going to wrestle with today is, how did God call the exiled Israelites to live? And then how are we as Christians by proxy also called to live? And the first thing that we are called to do is to put down roots. Jeremiah 29, 5 to 6 says this. It says, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens, eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too will have sons and have daughters. Increase there. Do not decrease. You see, the people had in their minds that they were going to be out of there in a year or two. Where'd they get that? Well, it was the false prophets who just told them what they wanted to hear. God, however, said, no, 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 you're going to be there for 70 years, which literally means if you're hearing that, you're going to die there. So settle in. Because what had happened is even though they had come into the community and even though they were being enculturated, they still tried to create their own community outside of the community. They tried to create their own Israelite bubble outside of Babylon. And God looks at them and he says, don't do that. Don't keep your bags packed. Unpack them. Be fully present. Be fully engaged. Put down roots, right? Build houses. Settle down. Plant gardens. And don't just plant them, eat what they produce. Marry, have sons and daughters, right? Like, like build a life. And then I love this last line, increase in number there. Don't decrease. God's call for them was to engage with the community in which they were and to not live this half in, half out sort of life. Because it's exhausting it's exhausting to live half in and half out. But we do it all the time. Right? We move into an apartment, and we know we're going to be there for a year, and so instead of actually putting everything up on our walls when it's like you know, four months left into our lease, and we're like, oh, we might not be here, so let's just kind of still live in our boxes. We, we, we step into a college, and we say, we're going to be here for two or four years, and so I'm here, but like, not really. I know there's a ticking clock coming. We, we, we step into a job or, or wherever it might be, and we have this like clock in our minds that we say, we're not going to be there forever, so like, why would I actually put, go all the way in? It's a side note. Some of us do that at church as well. 
I'm only going to be at Friends Orange for a few months while I'm doing this. I'm only at Friends Orange because whatever. I think the challenge that God has for you and for me is wherever we are to put down roots. Because in so doing, you don't understand the blessing that is to come if and when you do. The idea would be live as if you're going to be there for as long as possible, even if you're not. There's so many ways that we can see this done, but I just know from my life, this is something that God has been massively teaching me the last several years. I'm very future-minded, like both with like, big picture meta things, and then I'm also just very future-minded with my own life. I'm always thinking through two, three, five steps ahead, and I know that it can keep me from fully just being. Like if I'm in a conversation with someone, half the time I'm thinking through three conversations later that day. And so that's that's a personal challenge. But the way that this is practically working itself out in my life and in my wife and my life is a few years ago when we got married, we, we came to Friends Church like three months right before we got married. And we came in here because Friends Church, we were having conversations, and they said, Kevin, we see something in you. And I'm like, great, I see something in you too. We did the whole dating thing. This is awesome. You're cool. Do we want to be like actually like, you know, going steady? And so we're like, yeah, let's do it. And so we uprooted, we came up here, and we decided to, to be all in at Friends Church. But here's the problem is when we came, the goal, the the, the desire, both for friends and for us, was always that we would ultimately go out and launch a friend's church somewhere else. And so the first job they gave me was was helping launch one of our other campuses. So I was riding shotgun, doing a lot of the, the work behind the scenes, getting things up and going, learning a lot about who we are as a church and what we do and all these other things. But you know what was hard? is for the, the, the almost two years that we were there, we knew we weren't going to be there long term. And so we did everything we could to be all in, but if we really look back, we probably weren't as all in as we could have been or should have been. Right? In fact, sometimes we would come to Friends Orange because we were like, this is awesome. Instead of being all in in the community that we were called to for that season. And then COVID happened and things got kind of, you know, tossed up and down we reorged our staff, and, and they began to continue to reaffirm and reaffirm, Kevin and Lauren, we think God has called you to plant a church and lead a community, and this is what you're going to be doing, and like, this is going to be great. And so we began to look at all these different demographics, and we saw that there were like pockets within California of people who were watching us online, and we're like, maybe God wants to do something there. So we sent out a few groups up to Rancho Cucamonga, to Eastvale, uh, to, to, to a few other places as well, and I and my wife began to spend three days a week doing date nights and prayer walks throughout Long Beach, and even up into the South Bay a little bit. And we thought, man, we're going to, in a year, the plan was, be here in Orange for a year, and then go. And when we got here, we looked at each other, and we said, okay, being like halfway in isn't going to cut it. That's not what we want for you. That's not what we want for ourselves. And so we looked at ourselves and said, okay, we're probably leaving in a year. And that excited and terrified us. But at the same time, we said, we need to be fully in. And a year went by, and we did the work, work that most people had no idea was going on, a lot of behind-the-scenes work to get a possible location in Long Beach up and off the ground. And as we were getting to the point where we would have to start making things more concrete, I felt and we felt, and then Kyle and our elders also felt that God was saying, pause. Maybe forever or maybe for right now, but pause. 
And as a future-minded person who's always thinking about what's next, oh my goodness, that terrified us and excited us at the same time. But here's what I'll say. When we hit the pause button on that project, we were so, in some ways, uh, excited because we hadn't spent a year kind of sort of being in this community. We had spent a year building deep friendships and relationships. We'd spent a year cultivating our life group. We'd spent a year going out to dinners and, and getting to know people. We'd spent a year, um, actually at this point, three years in our block in Anaheim where we've been now um, for, for three and a half years where we have just said, this is our space until God calls us elsewhere. That we invested deeply in our, in our apartment, in our community. We, we have friends who literally come to our church now that we just met because we meet them at Target or we meet them um, in our building. Like amazing stories have happened because we said, we don't know when what's next is, but all we know is what's here. Friends, I don't know what's next in my life. I could be here for the next 30 years. I could be here for the next year. I don't know. God's writing a bigger story than me, but what I do know is I have an opportunity to be fully present with you and fully present with our city. And if I lived with bags that were still half unpacked, I would actually be robbing myself of the gifts that God wanted to give me in this season and the relationships and the community that we've built. And so the invitation for you is literally just that. It is to put down roots. The second invitation that we see from the scriptures is as you put down roots, as you lean in, as you don't withdraw, to stay grounded. Because what can happen oftentimes is when we begin to realize, okay, God, you're not calling me to a community outside of a community. God, you're not calling me to have my Christian subculture. God, you're not calling me to eat Christian food at Christian coffee shops and eat, listen to Christian music along with Christian podcasts, along with Christian clothing, along with Christian whatever. Oh, you're actually calling me to like be with the people. Okay, you learn that, but then what can happen? Oh, you start to become just like the culture and you forget God. Right, so, so in an attempt to Love the community well, it is so easy to allow the community to become more influential to you than God is in your life. And friends, if you feel a tension, that's the tension. That's the tension of the Christian life. It's the tension of what we call the already but not yet. It's the tension of how do I live this life well? Well, I live for the people in my community. I live with them, embedded with them, and I keep Jesus above all. I don't compromise. The best example I have of this in our world is that of an ambassador. I think about what an ambassador does. An ambassador is from country A, right? And they love country A, they're from country A, this is their identity as country A, and yet they're called then to move to country B. And as they go to country B, what are they called to do? They're called to learn the language and hopefully learn the accent and the dialect so they can have good conversations with that people. They learn the culture. They, they know everything there is and not just know it. They're like in it. That's how they're effective as an ambassador. But an ambassador loses their effectiveness if they forget that they ultimately are part of country A. But you can't advocate well and do your job as country A if you basically become country B. And over and over again in the New Testament, we are called to be ambassadors for Christ. That's exactly what God's talking about. Put down roots, but remain grounded to who God is. One of the things I love about the Bible, one of the things I love about the Old Testament specifically, 
is the amount of layers it has where in multiple different places it tells different parts of the same story. And so I love that this conversation around exile, this conversation around Babylon, it happens in a few different places. It happens in Kings. It also happens in one of my favorite books of all time, and that's the book of Daniel. And if you think about the book of Daniel, uh, it's an, my encouragement this week would actually be, make this your, your quiet time this week. Make this your devotional time. Read Daniel 1 today or this week. But if you want something for the rest of the week, read Daniel 1 through 6 over the course of the next five, six, seven days. But in Daniel chapter 1, Daniel is a young boy, he's an adolescent, and he and a a bunch of his friends are kind of plucked up because this guy named Nebuchadnezzar from this place called Babylon comes, and they take him and his boys over here into captivity. And he and his boys are over there, why? Because just like we read in here, they were part of the cultural elites. And so they were people who Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar were trying to influence so they could go back and influence their culture. And one of the first kind of opportunities, Daniel chapter one we see, is they're in this group of boys from all other countries that they're all doing this to all these other nations. And they give them the best food and the best wine and all this amazing things. And they say, eat it and like get strong. But Daniel knew that in those days before Christ, there were certain foods that they weren't supposed to eat. And here's the thing, outside of living in, in Jerusalem, outside of living amongst people who also were following God, these adolescents, these teenagers, oh my gosh, they could have been like, <laughs> We get to do everything we want. Mom and dad are away, right? Like that could have been their thought. But instead, he respectfully, and hear that word, asks and says, we are from a different place. And we eat different things. Can we only eat vegetables and drink water while everyone else has everything else? And the guy looks at him, he's like, you're crazy. But God has favor on him. And at the end of the week, once you know, the guys that have vegetables and water are in way better shape than the guys that eat red meat and drink wine. <laughs> but there's something there. Right, right? They, they, they hold fast to their identity. They hold fast to being grounded. They hold fast to what God has for them. And by so doing, here's the crazy thing. It says they're in the best shape. Other, the rest of the crew was given their diet, and they were given influence in the culture. You see, sometimes we think like to to make a difference in the culture, I have to become the culture or I have to be so separate. No, no, no. Daniel shows us you do both. And when you honor God, God, I believe, honors you. And Daniel gained influence and he gained authority. And then the rest of the, the book of Daniel, at least the first half, before it gets really apocalyptic, the second half, the first half of Daniel is story after story after story of Daniel and his boys saying, respectfully, we're gonna keep praying. Respectfully, we're not going to bow down to that idol. Respectfully, this, that, and the other. And guess what happens? Each and every time God honors them, and each and every time they are given more and more influence and more and more authority. So much so, this is one of my favorite parts about the Bible. Daniel, do you know what his little crew was called? He and the, 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 the other Jewish boys, but also the other people in his community, what were they called? are called the Magi. Have you ever heard that word before? Maybe when there's like Christmas trees up here? The wise men. And Daniel belonged to a group of Persian people. They, 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 they studied and they researched and they were the, the, the intellectual elites of that community. 
And I believe that because Daniel and his boys had influence and authority, because of them and others like them who listened to Jeremiah's warning, God's warning through Jeremiah, here's what happened. The scrolls and the beliefs and all the things that they maintained, the ways they stayed grounded, became a part of, of the literature and the library that was studied amongst the, the, the magi, these elites within the community of Babylon. So what happens several hundred years later? Daniel and his boys are long dead. But these scrolls have still been studied. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it seems like there's a massive star that appears in the sky. And they see that, and they think, this is weird. This is crazy. What's going on? Oh, wait. We remember, because we've studied this random text from this random group of people who were, you know, a thousand. What? Could it be true? And so they go. Because Daniel was faithful and Daniel was rooted, but Daniel also remained faithful to God in the midst of all of that. The Magi. An example for us of people like you and me, Gentiles, find out not only about Jesus, but they get to welcome him at his birth. That's pretty cool. You don't know the influence that your life will have beyond your life. You don't know the influence your time in a business or at a school or in a group will have beyond the time you're there. All you are called to do is to be fully faithful, fully present to wherever you are, to put down roots and to stay grounded and stay connected to God. And when we do both of those things, we begin to see God do something amazing. And that's our third point. It's that we're called to love well where or wherever we are. Jeremiah 29, 7 says this. It says, seek the peace. Seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Seek the peace is a crude English way of translating the word shalom. God's not telling them to go and turn Babylon into Jerusalem. God's not telling them to turn it into something that looks just like what they came from. No, no, he says, hey, love them well, serve them well, and when you do, when they prosper, you will prosper too. We always ask the question, how do I live my life today in the midst of a world that doesn't look like, like, like what I think God would have? It's a great question because guess what? The world has never looked like what you think God might have, and God has called you out to be exiles in it. What I love when people say, it doesn't feel like a Christian nation anymore. I'm like, great. We have such an opportunity to show people God's love and to live well for him. Right? We have an opportunity to live embedded lives, to care for people well, to seek the shalom and the goodness of our city. We have an opportunity to bring God's actual love and actual grace and actual mercy instead of just slapping the word Christian onto everything. We have an opportunity to actually make a difference and to see the kingdom of God come here and now. And we do that by being fully present where we are and staying grounded. One quick note on that. There's a lot of examples we can get into and in how you live that out, but the one that matters the most to me is the example of how we actually work in our everyday lives. Right, one of the questions I get as a pastor all the time is, Kevin, like, how do I like, live this out in my life? And I'd say, I don't know, I've never had a real job, but... Just kidding. Actually, that's probably why we don't talk about it a lot. But here's the thing. A few years ago, I did have a real job. You know what I mean. And, and God began to just teach me a lot, so much so that when I finished up my seminary degree, my capstone for it that I chose was to do an intensive project on the theology of work. 
And here's the thing, you, you, you go to work to make a living and to care for your family. Yep, 100%. You go to work with the opportunity to share Christ with those that God's put around you. Absolutely, 100%. But do you know how you actually do both of those things really well? Provide for your family and show Jesus his love? You do your job really well. If you're a teacher, be the best teacher possible. Not so you get like a, a, your, your picture on a plaque or whatever. Be the best teacher possible in ways that people might not even know. But be the best accountant possible. Don't take any shortcuts and go the extra mile to care for your people. Be, be the best mom or stay-at-home parent you could possibly be and raise those kids so well. Be the best whatever it is for you. When you do that, when you seek the betterment of wherever God's placed you, guess what? His name is going to be magnified. His name is going to be glorified. And, and we will begin to see the goodness and the shalom of God come to bear in our workplaces, in our homes, and in our city. So what does this look like for us? Well, real quickly, the example for us, unsurprisingly, is Jesus. John 1.14 says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Jesus knew he was only going to be here for 33 years. Jesus could have accomplished his mission without actually getting dirty in people's lives, in theory. But he didn't. Jesus is the example of what it looks like to live deeply for people, to be deeply connected, to put down roots, and to never forget to remain grounded, to be connected to God. Right? This is why when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment of the law was, he answered, it's to love God and to love one another. It's why we, Jesus had no difficulty living amongst and radically loving on people the culture referred to as tax collectors and sinners. And it's why the people that Jesus did rebuke were the religious people who wanted to build walls and create separation. It's why he literally brought wine to a wedding and got the party going. It's why he healed the untouchables by giving them love and dignity and worth. It's why he brought people of all backgrounds together. It's why he did more than anyone in history to elevate women. It's why Jesus did. All of this is because Jesus embodied for us a life of unpacked bags. Jesus embodies for us a life that he enters into our pain and our brokenness and died for us, right? Because he was in it and is in it with us. So what does it look like for us to follow Jesus' example? How do we live the way of Jesus? You've already seen him. Put down roots, stay grounded, love well where you are. So as we close, the reality is those three things are three important things for all of us. But my guess is that God might be speaking to you more about one of them than the others. Maybe you're someone who's lived your Christian life and your Christian existence and you've, you've lived it in a bubble outside of the, the community around you. You've tried to wall off and bubble and, and, and keep yourself protected, but what you're realizing maybe is, oh, that's not what God's called me to do. My call is not to separate. My call is to engage. So engage. Maybe for you, it's that you have allowed the culture to erode your sense of who God is. You compromise left and right. You watch shows now that you wouldn't have ever dreamed of watching two or three or four years ago when you first came to loathe, love and know Jesus. You've compromised. 
Because you say, everyone's living with their boyfriend or girlfriend, so why not do it myself? You've compromised. Because you've said, oh, everyone does this, or everyone has that extra drink, or whatever. Remember your first love. Remember that God's way is always better. Not easier, but better. And even in the midst of that, I want you to hear God's heart and his posture is always grace. It is never condemnation. But God truly just wants the best for you. So however you're feeling called with those two, I think all of us still then are called to that third point, to love well where we are. One of the things he says in verse seven is to to pray. To pray for the peace and the shalom of the city. So we're gonna do that right now. God, we thank you. God, we praise you. God, we are so incredibly grateful for you. God, on this 4th of July weekend, we are grateful for the freedom that you give. God, on this 4th of July weekend, we are grateful. And so, God, today we do pray for the peace, for the well-being, for the prosperity of the city of Orange. We pray for our leaders. We pray for the people who guide and make decisions for our county, the people who guide and make decisions for our city, the people who make decisions for our state and our nation and beyond. God, would we engage with your love? Amen.